hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I am here today, a returning visitor from his meteoric success with Resurrection of the Daleks. Um, the the most bile-ridden commentary yet done on Hamster. Mr. Paul Quinn, how do you feel about that? Oh, I, 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 it's a badge of pride, Joe. It's a badge of pride. <laughs> Uh, that I was able to proselytise the sheer shitness of Resurrection of the Daleks. Do you know, I got I got a message from Toby Hado the day that came out. Um, consider that a badge on it, because he doesn't often get in touch and say, I, that guy's great. But I also got a message from Cy Hartwright, who loves Resurrection of the Daleks and loves Davidson. And he goes, I disagreed with everything he said. He goes, he's brilliant. What a brilliant podcaster. So you're appealing to the masses, both ends. Yeah, there you go. This one may be less so. This is a bit trickier. This is a less populist text, I think, that we're going to look at this, um, this evening. What, you don't think this is a popular story? I know, populist as opposed to popular. Oh, okay, okay. Well, okay, well, I better say what we are talking about today, and that is the three-part I consider classic from season 26, where the show's getting his act together just before the chop comes down. When did you first watch this? At the time? At, at broadcast. Um, but I didn't see the second episode. I was rushed to hospital the day before it was shown with the appendicitis. And I didn't have a chance to set the video. And my parents, God love them, couldn't work a video. So it was about 10 years until I saw the second part. But um, that's why I don't understand people who go, I don't understand the story because me as a, what would I have been, 12-year-old, not quite 12-year-old, saw the first part and the third part and pretty much understood the story just for those two parts. And then, then I read the book as well then when it came out a, a year later. I mean, I would go as far as to say that you are smarter than the average human being. I don't think I'm out of line saying that. But I also think the answers are there if you want to go looking. Interestingly, on the DVD, Andrew Cartmel actually does spell out the entire plot. Does, and there yeah. was a few pertinent details that I've been missing yeah. all these years. But I mean, uh, I, got, I got the sense of it. I, I, I'm one of those people they refer to who think the, sh the ship has been there for a, a much longer period of time. But actually, when, when you think about it, it, it can't have been because the tunnel to it. They, they didn't build the tunnel to the ship. They built the tunnel to the cellar and then the ship landed there. I'm not convinced by this argument that light left and then the, and then just I brought the ship back. That doesn't seem to quite sit with what you're told because the survey isn't complete. So, but of course, notoriously, and as is made clear on the commentary and in the, um, uh, the documentary and in people who've written about this, this is a script which is edited to the bone because it overruns and there's so much in there. And, and it's such a rich script. It's the greatest script of the 1980s. You'd go, you'd go that far? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I adore this script. You know, this will be a love fest. People will be getting sick by, by the end of this. This is my, my loving with this script. As well, opposed they, to Resurrection, which is dog shit. They never have so far, you know, <laughs> we've had love-ins. Well, explain yourself. Why is this the best script of the 80s? Before we even go into any detail as we watch it. I, I, I adore McCoy anyway. McCoy was when I started watching Doctor Who properly. My, my, my first Doctor would be Peter Cushing 
in the in the Dalek <laughs> yeah in Dalek Invasion of Earth, which I absolutely adore. I love that film beyond reason. I, I, it, uh, Bernard Cribbins is awesome in it. Yeah. Uh, the, the Daleks are amazing. Um, Andrew Kerr is in there. It's just it's brilliant that film. It's a, it's a brilliant adaptation of what's a good script, but it gets rid of some of the ropey bits like the slither. So then I started watching it properly. Twenty four. So Time of the Rani is an interesting jumping on point, which would tell you that your, your critical faculties aren't great. But I, I adore this run. I, I, I absolutely, it, it's brilliant. And, then, and this is a script that just grows on you yeah, as a kind of tedious humanities lecturer who spends his life with literature. This is the most literate script, I think, since Sansa Wen Chiang. And there's a clear relationship between those two texts. Um, but it's I'm better than Sansa Wen Chiang, I would suggest. Oh, I've got two questions for you then before we go in. I know editing is an issue in this era. Uh, that is why we've got special editions where there's effectively like an entire episode. I don't think this is that badly edited. I think there's about 10, 15 minutes of uh, omitted scenes. But like Curse of Fenric could have gone to five, yeah. I think. And Silver Nemesis probably could have gone to four. Uh, do you think that's an issue in the era? Like, are pertinent plot points taken out in favour of like the spectacle no I think they've got over the used to claim didn't it, of John Nathan Turner that he would he would take bits out of scripts that he thought was holding things up and then the scripts are underrun and then things have to be added to the scripts and Cartman I think says that John Nathan Turner didn't understand scripts but by this point he does understand them and obviously I mean I mean if you I mean you've read um the production diaries since I have, yes, thank you very and, much. Hartmore does the intro to that, and in Script Doctor, which of course is the text we referred to before, and there's a kind of, Hartmore does position himself in a kind of central position there, which he is in, but he's always very good towards John Nathan Turner, I think, and, and I think the argument that after the crisis of 85, after, and you know, if you read the production diaries and i would urge all your listeners to if they haven't done you could just see how bad things have got in that production team and you get a sense then by you get to 24 25 26 say 25 and 26 john mcintyre is stuck there he's not getting the envelopes of cash from america fandom's kind of turned on him and now he's making a program with someone he can work with i think that's crucial i think cartman is a great script editor I think he's he's brilliant on those um, when he turns up on documentaries. He, he's so generous. He knows this stuff and he brings a political edge to it. And what's also interesting in this run is you start to see these two headed scenes, which look like something from contemporary drama. These people are bringing a, a, a theatrical sensibility, but it never feels theatrical in the way that people complain that Colin Baker often feels theatrical. What they mean by that is it feels stagey and that he shouts a lot. McCoy doesn't really do that. And what, what's significant in this program in particular and ghost how he turns down some of those tendencies um you know the, it, it looks amazing yeah it, it's beautiful it's the final production that the classic series is it's the, it's the last one isn't it it's the last one filmed at, at tv and and boy do they go out on a high because the, the point they make there in the commentary is bbc weren't really doing costume drama at that point they kind of this is before Middle March and before Pride and Prejudice and that, that great return to the genre in, in, in the mid-90s, they kind of turned away from it. And so the costume design as the set design, they really go for it and it looks awesome. And there is a point there that the pseudo-historical, you know, as opposed to the pure historical, is if there's such a thing as a pure historical in Doctor Who, because there's always an anachronistic element in it, which is the Doctor and the TARDIS and the Companions. But once, you know, Innis Lloyd makes that weird decision to, to drop 
it's pure historical with the Highlanders. You get the emergence of the pseudo-historical, which is the Doctor, the TARDIS, and some other anachronistic element, which had been introduced really in, in the chase, but but clearly in the in the time meddler. But you don't get that many of them. If you stop and think about it, there aren't that many of them. Time Warrior? Time Warrior, uh, Pyramids of Mars, Talons, Talons of Wing Chiang, Horrifang Rock. You have to jump forward into Davis and Revisitation, which isn't very good, King's Demons, which isn't very good, and this. Uh, what I, and, and you get kind of faux pseudo-historicals under Graham Williams. So you get Androids of Why does Mark of the Rani fall? Mark of the Mark of the well, that's an interesting one where they do come back to it. And, and, and that's the kind of model that you see New Who picks up on, mm. that you go back a, to the historical. Celebrity historical with Stevenson and, Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have a famous figure there. So Stevenson there, Dickinson, Unquiet Dead. Um, Doctor and a Single Companion. That's the model. Weirdly enough, they've gone back to season 22 for that model. But when you look at the list of the pseudo-historicals, there's some big, big episodes there, which is why I think we have an idea that it's it, it's um, a more prominent genre than it is. Because they're standout stories. They're the ones we remember. Yeah. Do you know, go back to Cartmel for a second. I always feel like whenever he talks about J&T, he's very aware of his flaws. Like he's aware of where he's been with Eric Saywood, and he's aware that he doesn't want, really want to be there anymore. But he's just so happy that he's actually taken a chance on a young script editor yep. who is then bringing in completely new writers. And he's basically saying, look, just do, do it. <laughs> you know, I'll budget it. I'll bring in some great actors. Um, it's almost like by taking the foot off the pedal a little bit, by relinquishing the control a little bit, suddenly like the creativity of the show, it can breathe. Yeah. You get here what they always claim they wanted, but which they couldn't get are writers and new writers for the show. They have, once you get over Time in the Rani, and, and you, know, you like Time in the Rani, oh, I like Time in the Rani. Glorious. Kip and Jane Baker are kind of relics from the past, but they can turn a script in. As you've said before, they can turn a script in, it goes from A to B to C to D, and it does the job. I and think, you know, until Pip and Jane Baker come in, I don't think anyone's writing for kids, really. Yeah. And they remember the kids. And then as we go into tw lots of, through 24, that is a, a, a complete season that you could put a, 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 an intelligent six-year-old down in front of and, and let them watch it. I think I think the run of writers, yeah, Wyatt is awesome. Didn't JNT say that, is it is it one of the episodes of, of Delton Devanaman is the worst script he's ever read, which is amazing given that he's there for time match because Delton Devanaman is a beautiful program. It's a beautiful story. And it's a, it's, a, it's a mature story about love and loss, but it's also a story children can watch. Delta is the blueprint for the new series. It's <laughs> shot in Wales. It's got an emotional element to it. There's a relationship drama in there. They throw some aliens in as well. There's a musical number. I think yeah. Rusty Davis was paying attention. It, it's fabulous, um, Delta and the I, I love it to bits. I always did. And, you know, Gavrock really gives the McCoy uh, a villain to face off. I, I like Richard Briers in Paradise Towers. I can see the problems with it. I can also see that in the script is different to what turns up on, on yeah. the screen. Kane is one that everyone looks to for, for the villain in Dragonfire. Dragonfire, I think, is the weakest of those three. Um, I think it's the, 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 the least interesting script. But when you get into 25, even, even something like Silver Nemesis, which on one level isn't very good, but it's a fun story. Oh, and it's, it's what so Lady Kane's for, and she is awesome. We the ride is, to destiny. The problem, of course, it, it's the same plot line as Remembrance of the Daleks, and you yeah. can't get away with that in in a in a season. Oh, so she brings it up at the end. 
Yeah. She, I know, she's very subdued, isn't she? And then <laughs> Just yeah. like you nailed the Daleks. Yeah. Please, yeah. don't remind us of that, okay? Fix <laughs> me on the Daleks, mate. Yeah, but look, and and my and my um and my and my uh, record player or whatever it is, jukebox. Now I'm so old. What is it? A uh, Gecko Blaster. Like they blew that up as well. Shh, don't mention I'm always fine with like I always think about McCoy as like Doctor Who that would work amazingly as a comic. There's like loads of great imagery yeah. that would look great as comic panels. You know, turn the page and there you've got, I don't know, the freezer center in Ice World or yeah. that creature in the pool in Paradise Towers. You know, the Navarinos going through the, the crazy thing before they get on the bus. And that's just 24. Because I actually Hart, think Hartman is thinking in terms of comics, though, isn't he? He does think of yeah. in terms of Watchmen and 2000 AD, so it would work like that because they're thinking those terms as well. Weirdly enough, I feel <laughs> this one, Ghostlight, is the exception there, where as a comic, this would actually look a little dull, but as a TV production, as done by the BBC, who are experts at this sort of thing, gosh, it's gorgeous. It's it's and the cast the cast is incredible. I mean, listen to commentary. The other potential cast, you know, Michael Caine is mentioned. Harry Enfield, Brenda Blair. Michael Caine. Michael Caine, yeah, is light. Oh no, please! I, I think he would, he would make different choices. I think. But um, uh, it's phenomenal. The, the the casting is just so assured in this, and it looks incredible. And the regulars are brilliant in it absolutely i adore it and and even though i did spot an issue with it last night when i was re-watching it but I, I i love it a bit oh i can't wait to see what that is okay i've got one last question then before yeah. we go in because we should go in and that is how much is this story stroke this season responsible for the series of books that came after season 26 because i think you can see all the seeds here i, I think you can see it in the television program and you can see it in the the books that they produce on the back of them. Uh, I think Remembrance, yeah. Curse of Fenric, this. and Ghostlight as well, yeah. I, th I think in particular um, Curse of Fenric because it, it's, it's, it's different sources. It's not a straight narrative. So it's different It's different texts that are there. So um, a historian's account, a translation of a Norwegian text from the ninth century. The way it's structured is really interesting. Um, Briggs moves this on into into quite an interest. Uh, um, um, not Briggs. Um, Platt moves this on into quite an interesting direction. Some of this, and and you know Ben Aronovich has gone on to have a successful career as a novelist. He can write. He has issues with deadlines, um, and Transit goes into some difficult places. But Transit was kind of a necessary novel. But the transition is here in this season and in the books that come immediately after that this season. I think is really pointing the direction for um, the new adventures. I know you're going to tell me you like Transit, aren't you? It pains me to say I've got to read it over, over Christmas because I'm doing it in January for the book club. I do quite like Transit. I mean, I think I think at the time it's a difficult read, but I think you can see why it's a necessary text, I think. Uh, and certainly, you know, Aronovich is thinking in terms of the established chronology of the show and where he can go with it. So, of course, you get Leftbridge Stewart descendants, and you get this future Earth, which kind of has links back to, to Malcolm Hulk's vision of, of Earth in the Pertwee era that we, we've spoken about before. So I think this, yeah, I mean, there's there's the there's the counterfactuals of what would season 27 have looked like following this, but it sounds very similar to what we got with the new adventures anyway. And of course, the other counterfactual is the possibility of a season that was produced by Cartmel with Mark Platt, script editor, and Ben Aronovich's advisor enticing isn't it it's the great it's the great what what could have been 
the trouble is, is when they had the chance to realise that, which was about 20 years later, when Big Finish did season 27, I don't think it would have been... Because what they're talking about here on documentaries and what they produce there as audios, there's a world between yeah. them. Yeah. So I think they're sort of misremembering what they were going to do. It's a shame because those, those stories are actually pretty dull. I don't, I don't think it was as... Um established as they've later suggested i think it was far more uh, nascent as to wouldn't it be good to do this because the number of stories that they're talking about is beyond the number of episodes they would have had and you've also uh, i presume mccoy was going to leave uh, uh, at the end of the season after his fourth year yeah, yeah. but so if your is also going to be written out so you, you structurally it's quite difficult and they're meant to introduce uh, the gangster who's meant to be the regular friend of the doctor. Oh, Rain. Yeah. yeah. But also you've re-established Unit in such a, a successful way in Battlefield. Because again, Battlefield is another story that I love to bits and I'll defend to my dying day. That's another great novel as well. Mark Platt takes hold of that and he gives it layers. I'll tell you what though, I do think I, I appreciate, I admire the ambition of the new adventures, but I think, a lot of the time it's the ideas that they are forming here taken to an extreme yeah. because there's nobody keeping them on the leash. So they, they go to really dark places and, you know, the kids are completely left behind there. Well, I like it here, though, you know, where they're stuck within the constraints of the television show. Yeah. So they yeah. can have the dark doctor, the master manipulator, how he mistreats Ace or it is, I don't know, what, what was it doing training her to be a time lady or something that's what he's meant to be because this is an, an uh, initiation test or initiative test isn't it but uh, sandifer argues that you read this as a repeat of what happens in Eve of the daleks that they're in a victorian house and the doctor puts the companion to the test for two different reasons and of course you've then got that idea that actually this manipulative small dark-haired doctor that painful seems to be referring to in silver nemesis is McCoy, but it's also Patrick Troughton. Mm. It's the version of Troughton we tend to forget because, of course, fandom is strange. When, 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 when Troughton comes back in Three Doctors, that's a very different version of the Doctor. If you go back to late season four, bits of season six, he's a far different character, and he's not this kind of clownish figure messing around with, with John Pertwee, who then comes back, persuaded to come back for for five Doctors and then then two Doctors. And so there's a sense in which there's a yeah, that's that's a oh the theory. idea of Patrick Troughton and Fiona Walker locking horns. Yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> There's clearly the bi generation much earlier on. There's a different version of the second <laughs> that's popped out, or it's the six A or six B, whatever that version is, or just like a uh, multiverse. But here is here is that type of you know, sinister Doctor, Malignant, but it's McCoy. The, the McCoy Doctor we see on TV is different, I think, to what we see in the new adventures. And that terrible run, he mopes around the TARDIS in his room. Yeah, we talked about that, didn't we? Kind of annoying. Mm. And it's not really McCoy. McCoy can do morose. He does it, but he can turn like that. Because that's that's the nature of McCoy as a performer. He's this kind of mercurial figure because he's got that really um, detailed background of uh, physical comedy. And um, when he was on Vision On, you know, the, the, the proto um, uh, Tony Hart, when he's putting um, ferrets down his trousers with Ken Campbell, who's of course the other great lost doctor because Ken Campbell's up for this, but he's just too weird and too out there for, for John Nathan Turner. But McCoy, McCoy, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's Lear's fool in Britain's version of King Lear. He's, he's got this amazing background to him and people kind of dismiss him because of the way- I did, he, I did. 
stories. These three so, things. I've gone on a journey with McCoy. I used to really find him a bit embarrassing. I used to call him like a dangerous performer because he just goes for it. And that means it's either going to really work well or sometimes he goes over a clip. You know, a bit in survival where he's there screaming, don't move. Oh, yeah. you know, all, and you're like, oh, please shut. Now, I just love the eccentricity of him. I love how wacky he is. And I, I like how bold he is as a performer. It doesn't always work. I think this is his best performance. Oh, that by a country mile. By a country mile. I mean, Remembrance and Great Show in the Galaxy and this. You'd put them in the top three for the 80s. You'd probably put them in your top three for Classic mm. Who. And they're probably in the top three across all of Who. Certainly this. And, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the three. Those three are three of the greatest stories in Doctor Who of all time. Well, Paul, somehow we've uh, taken a whirlwind tour around season 6B, the entirety of Classic Who, the new adventures and by regeneration. So we're completely up to date as well. Should we go and watch Ghostlight episode one? Let's watch. <laughs> we covered a lot there. We'll go and count as him. Three, two, one. <laughs> oh, I love doing this with you. <clears throat> You're the only sort of one who knows this stuff more than I do, you know. Well, you know, you started we, first. We we learned together, didn't we? Mm. You know, long conversations there when you used to come round at the end of college, or when I'd rock over to you. Long video. I can still off. remember you reading out synopses of the program guide and making some of the dreariest Doctor Who stories sound incredible. Yeah, yeah. And then you saw Underworld, and you went, "Oh, Paul was right. Underworld is awesome." <gasps> no, then I read the book. Yeah, on my yeah. recent podcast, and I said, Paul was right. The world is a great book. Yeah, just take away the director. Okay, here we go. We're going back to 18... 1883. Yes. Okay. Yes. The only piece of location work in the entire thing. <laughs> Which they filmed when they were doing Survival. Ah, okay. And so that is in Perivale. No, no, it's where they go to Dorset for Planet of Ah, yes, yes, yes. Sylvia Sims. Sylvia Sims. Chilling, isn't she? Absolutely brilliant. Wonderful music. Mark Ayres, interesting, on, on the commentary says that he was trying to fill in some of the missing plot or some of the missing scenes with the music. He's trying to make the music tell part of the story as well. It's one of my most listened to soundtracks for Doctor Who. I, I can just listen to You know that bit where Redfuss is going at him with the gun? Yes. And that crazy sort of tribal music is playing. I bloody love that. The Times... Well, oh, Mrs. Gross, was she supposed to have a bigger part? Um, I'm not sure, but of course, the, the name is meant to make you think that she leaves this and goes to the house and turns the screw because it's the same name, name as the housekeeper. So she's kind of locked into haunted houses and and um, Victorian um, psychodrama. Reverend Tell your master, Paul, that the Reverend Ernest Matthews has arrived. Dean of, of Morehouse College, Oxford, um, with his fearsome mutton chops. <laughs> so uh, what is he doing? Is he just going around places debunking all scientific no, uh, he's been In the novel, he's been invited by Red, uh, by uh, Josiah Samuel Smith. It, it, because he's an Oxford don, you're meant to think that he's been um, a witness to the Oxford debates in the 1860s between Wilberforce and Thomas Huxley, Aldous Huxley's grandfather, who's Darwin's uh, bulldog, and that they've gone at it over Darwin's theories of evolution, which do absolutely rock the foundations of Victorian society, that you can no longer necessarily believe in a six-day creation and, and that man has always been um, 
yeah, Homo sapien. Um, and so you're meant to think that he's come from that that um, background. In the novel, which is expanded on his role, that he's gone after Smith in, in print, he's read Smith's theories, and he sees them in London. There's a very odd scene where he goes to Covent Garden and he sees Gwendolyn in the box and there's a shadowy figure behind her because he's kind of he's kind of infatuated with Gwendolyn. He calls her his angel. Oh, no, he in his monologue, in his interior monologue, he refers to her as, as his angel. And then, of course, when she approaches him in his last scene, um, you get the reference to the angel again, because it's ironic. And you can see in the change in the costume how they're playing with this notion of what happens to Gwendolyn or what Gwendolyn is revealed to be. I love the fact that this is a haunted house story because we just had the scene there where she's like, you know, my dears, we won't stay here a moment longer and heaven help anyone who does, you know, after dark. Which is a fabulous line, but it's it's a haunted house story, the likes of which I have never seen before or since. Being close on the lock, of course, is significant because they're now then they're trapped in the house. Because in, mm. in 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 part, this is about um, Victorian treatments of the insane. Hence the references to Alice in Wonderland. The only uh, time I've seen a, a less subtle close up on a lock, you know, is the X Files episode Home. Which is exactly the same thing. I remember you talking to me about that before. I hate, home. I hate that episode so much. <laughs> I, I loathe uh, it so much. Well, it, let's it, talk about that for hamster extra, though, shall yeah. we? <laughs> All these stuff. Some lovely William Morris wallpaper there. So absolutely at, at the height of beautiful shot there. That's a replay, but unconsciously of a shot in Venice on Varos, I think. There's yeah. so many allusions to Ace's childhood, isn't there? Throughout yeah. her run. Yeah. school trips you know um blowing up the art room we just sketch her in in a way that we don't with so many companions it's a mark of how different things are now that this is a, this is a proper companion with, with a life and of past and a past that's impacting on it and has made the person that we have here this kind of damaged figure um in a way that we learn very little about other companions um, i really like how they bring in the race element you know the white kids firebombed it but I think it's very easy to laugh at now. You know, people watching this now. It's it's part of a whole um, discussion about race that Cartwell is introducing. It. Because you know, famously, he said, what would he do with the job? He wanted to bring down the government. Mm. And and he, he didn't quite achieve that, but... He didn't. I mean, the, the, the government, she, she does just outlive the show by a year or so, doesn't she? Um, here we go, Red Oh, it's Michael Cochran. I've recently done Black Orchids, you know. Black Orchids is, is, is kind of rubbish. You've gone Go silent, <laughs> I love silent it. Scene, the, the, the shot. <laughs> a lady or barely dressed. Victoria. I mean, he's essentially playing the same part, isn't he? he always just... plays the same part. Everything he is, he is the poshest man on television. Um, but if you want that type of figure, but what's interesting here is he's he he's playing the same type, but he's not. It's it's a kind of dissection of a notion of a particular Victorian figure, because this is a um, program, a text, which is all about evolution. But it's set in a period in late Victorian England where they're concerned about devolution or the possibility you can degenerate. And so what happens at the end when Control and Josiah swap over is really playing to fears in Victorian society. So here is Redfers, the kind of imperialist figure. He's emerging from like King Solomon's Mines, Alan Quatermain, that type of H. Ryder Haggard stuff. And we'll get the reference to Conan Doyle as well and, and, and the Lost World. But actually, what happens to him is really significant. 
in terms of that he gets locked in that room you know it, it highlights the asylum motif in this and in the end he goes off with these other beings well, and he it, shakes it, off himself doesn't he because i never really like redfuss anyway yeah, he talks about himself too yeah. much <laughs> yeah he kind of gives up on the on the on the kind of figure that he's created of himself and so what's interesting is, is how this is a text about male egos redfuss um Ernest Matthews and Josiah Samuel Smith and what's interesting on, on that um commentary is which I'd missed before Redford's misunderstand um, um uh, Josiah misunderstands Victorian society he thinks because he's a Victorian gentleman he's at the top of society and thus he can knock over Queen Victoria he doesn't understand the wider society beyond the house that he puts himself at the top of the power structure in the house, but he doesn't realize about the power structure beyond the house. But of course, the fact is about killing Queen Victoria is all about these concerns, fears about the decline of of, of the Victorian society. Well, he literally thinks without the invite, he can't do it. Doesn't yeah. he? He's appalled yeah. when that invite goes into the fire. It's partly about the the the, the script is a, a joke about that type of polite society. So, of course, then the, the big joke is what's in the soup tureen at the end. And you, oh, you, you read those two uh, dinner scenes back to back. That is one of the best lines in the entire show. <laughs> it's, it's so well done. It's so dry. Here we go. Chinese Chinese fire and peace for throwbacks to Talons of Wen Chuan, which is the other text you have to read this alongside, of course. Um, and here we have our very smart Neanderthal, Nimrod. Which means hunter, of course. Um or silent brute. No, silent now. Of course, we know that, but at the time it wasn't quite clear what they were saying because the notorious is an issue with the soundtrack in this as well, and that the, the mix isn't quite right. And well, you say about the mix, this now, his, I love the music here, yeah. but there's times when you can't hear what he's saying. Yeah, the mix is, is like, Ayers talks about that. There's a problem with it, particularly the second episode. Look at McCoy and Aldred as a couple here on screen. Like, they've just got it, haven't they? I absolutely adore this pairing. And, and that's why I have an issue with the new adventures, because they don't seem to get it. They do want no. to turn into this sort of abusive couple. Well, because you take away the one thing that makes them work, which is the chemistry between the actors. Yeah. I mean, Sophie is not the greatest actress in the world, but, but what, she, what she can do, she does really well, and she's really good in this. Really I, I have issues with her audio performances because yeah. I, I don't think she gets the balance quite right and i do think mccoy like i said can go either way but there's some magic when you bring them together and there's uh, there's it sparkles when when i saw uh the first of the hobbit films which i quite like actually i know you're not meant to but i you know particularly the opening scene is epic in a way that cinema really is when, when mccoy turned up i could feel tears prickling that's how excited and moved i was to see him on the big screen in that type of doctor's role did you watch the monsters movie did you feel the same way there the monsters movie yeah he turned up in that as well i don't i don't reduce i, don't, I, don't, I hate the cinema you know oh she's got she's got a line there which i use all the time this is like an asylum with the patients in charge yeah. i love that line but again it, it it's it's part of what it's doing because what this seems to be using and so the references to alice uh, and the dinner party comes into play there's a really good young academic young german academic called francesca colt she spoke for us at an event about four years ago. She's up at Leeds now and she does work on um, Lewis Carroll and that in the Victorian period, they used to do fake tea parties in asylums as a method of treatment. So, of course, the Hatter's Tea Party in Alice in Wonderland is that. But there's a sense in which the, the dinner parties, the, the events around the dinner, that's a version of this here. But the issue is there's no doctor until the doctor turns up in this. Right. There's no treatment. 
that's what I think is going on in, in, in this. And you know, Nimrod. The, of course, talking about the crisis or an investigation into crisis around Victorian masculinity, Nimrod is the figure who's died out that they bring out of stasis. He's the effective male figure in this. But of course, because of the power structure, he's working for Josiah. But actually, this is the figure who works for the Doctor. Um, big picture of Queen Victoria there. Honestly, Paul, I could just listen to you all day. Do you know? I don't want to do that, do I? <laughs> Young lady. Because of course, what else is coming into play here, which is why they dress in the um, dinner jackets. It's mm. meant to be Burlington Bertie, but actually there's, there's something deeper to that because this is also the period, this 1880s, going into 1890s and then into the 20th century is the period of the new woman and like the appearance of the suffrage movement and and this essentially first wave feminism and the concern about what happens if, if women obtain these kind of liberties misogyny asks what will happen to them and so there are very famous cartoons of uh, women with beards talking um important things and the men sitting wow. down and that's all coming into play in this, I think. So when they, what's interesting on the commentary, of course, JNT ensures that um, Catherine Schleisinger as Gwendolyn and Sophie Aldrich have to have their hair down so that they're still feminine. We can't, oh my God, so we haven't quite got there still. No, no, not quite. But I think... I mean, it's exactly Gwendolyn, what happened in the war, isn't it? It's the same thing again. The <clears> fear <throat> of the women. What the hell are the men going to do when they come back? I mean, if you look at the First World War, the, the, the unions are particularly vociferous about stopping the women going into the factories because what will they do with the men? And the policing of women's bodies in the First World War is absolutely shocking. So um, there's, there's, there's accounts of, of women who lose their pensions because they're suspected of being prostitutes. They lose the pensions and they have to become prostitutes. It becomes kind of, and, and then in 1918, it becomes illegal for women to give men VD, even though the massive VD epidemic in the British Army is the soldiers sleeping with prostitutes in France and Belgium. They bring the VD back home. They blame the women, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ian, Hogg, Ian, Hogg, Ian Hogg is brilliant in this. I mean, Ian Hogg is awesome anyway, and I think Rockcliffe's Babies is on at this point. So he was playing a kind of detective with a young group, and then he got off to do Rock, uh, Rockcliffe's Follies. Did you ever um, hear his other Doctor Who performance? Um, is, uh, is it Big Finish? It's the Sandman from Big Finish. Yeah, it's a Colin Baker story, where his voice is heavily treated. But he's phenomenal. You still know well. it's him. Though. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's one of the great mysteries in this. Of course, why? Why is the? Why is there a bit of light in the box? I mean, it's a great scene, and it's really playing to that horror stuff. But it doesn't doesn't really quite make sense. I've never really understood it. But we haven't had really scary imagery like this in no. Doctor Who for some time, have we? No, I mean they are they are kind of bringing it back. I think all the business around the crypt in Silver Nemesis is suggesting where it's going to go. And then of course the crypt is empty. There's a kind of rug for it. Mags turn into the um, werewolf, even though the makeup's not quite good enough, but it is bringing that kind of back in. Well, when's the last time you feel we had an atmosphere as thick as this, you know, a know, tangible you mean, atmosphere like this? They, they, want, they want to do it in um, Paradise Towers, I think. But the tone... It could have been done in Paradise Towers, couldn't it? Um, I think, and I suppose great is showed, but it's so bright that yeah. um, that that is kind of killing it. I think, I, I think some of the scenes are so ordered in the in the caravan with Bellboy. That's right, but then of course, and then they, you have this and Curse of Favorite back to back, so they're really leaning into it. Yeah, and and it's a survivor as well. I think I it's mean, like remembering what the show does well. Or, or, or a kind of half remembering and then producing it for now. That's really what they've done, isn't it? It's people who stopped watching the show in about 1981 
and they go back to uh, season 14 in particular, I think. That notion of transformation, of course, because that's a key Holmesian motif, you start to see that turning up in, in this run of the programme as well. Um, uh, yeah, they're on the dinner jacket to drag them away, and the thunder, of course, because what else do you have in a, in a haunted house story except that? And of course, it's working on so many levels. This the, and and that that's the intertextuality. You know, it's Dracula, it's Jekyll and Hyde, it's the Time Machine, it's Darwin, and so it's working on so many different levels. And I seem to recall when you were talking about Towns of Wang Chiang, you know, you threw in a ton of references of things that Holmes was alluding to there. They're all here. They're, but again, it's something Doctor Who does well: borrow the sources, utilize them. And, and of course, it's it's our awareness as an audience of those sources that helps to mm. construct this world, and that's why. And you can hear it, Cartmel. Cartmel's really not convinced, I think, by some of the alien worlds that are produced in in the period that he's working on the show. But the period pieces, so the fifties, the sixties, and this in particular, the Second World War, they really do it well, and they they become alien worlds far more effectively than the actual alien worlds we go to. By all accounts, the few the few ideas that we got. Uh, from 27 was there was two historicals of the four stories yeah. there was two historicals so yeah. he absolutely knows what the bbc can do and they so you you place their strengths and they become I, about ideas and you don't have to spend a lot of money. I mean, the husks obviously are here but jnt insists on the husks because he thinks you need monsters do you think the story would lose anything if they were there i don't i don't i, mean... I do remember it really scaring me yeah, like when I, I was younger, and I think the glove when it comes up at the lift, when control climbs up at the lift, and it is that it's just that hand. It has those images. Do you know but the I, bit that terrified me was the peeling of his face? Yeah, that just that, that he was changing in something. In the in the book, they lean into it's like a snake because you can see the skin underneath. You can see you can see um, his new face underneath it. But this notion of um, I tell you a show that does it really similarly but really badly is Threshold in Voyager. When oh, recently this, discussed, Paul. Yeah, yeah, that's why it's in my head because usually it's locked away in in the dark recesses <laughs> in an asylum. Yeah, you know, it's like the Mad Woman in the attic. You never really forget. Um, just so with his phone. What's missing, of course, is and the scene that doesn't make it into the final cut is when he's looking in the microscope, and the microscope is linked to the eyes. That's why the eyes of the animals glow. It's because it's a surveillance system. But I think it's more interesting if it's. Oh, the I don't power. think that's very clear, though. Is it? Yeah. It just yeah. seems like a just a cool effect. I don't you think. Know, I think the eyes glowing would be an in early indication of, of the house coming back, or the creatures coming back to life because of the power from light ship. There was there was a lot of this I did appreciate as a kid. I never understood that the husks were old cast off as just yeah. like, even though it is explicitly stated, you yeah. never saw the transformation. So I never made the link. No. Yeah, Sylvia seems a deeply sinister smile. Oh, th this sequence in a second. Yeah. The burnt toast, I loathe bus stations. Yeah. This is one of the best ever yes. Doctor Companion scenes. It's it's phenomenal. But again, it's the two it's the two of them together. It's a two header. It says there's there's theatre here now at this point, and there's a bravery that they're prepared to do it in Doctor Who. When you think about where they've come from, you can see it in in um, Happiness Patrol when he convinces the, the snipers to throw away the guns. When he talks Helen A down at the end of it, he's oh, always two headed. They're really great. But yeah. when he's playing this sort of purring, this menacing yeah. dog, that's his strengths, yeah. you know? That's yeah. what I always think Big Finish forget. They give him, him mad technical no, and, you know, lots of comedy to play. And it, it's just a bit agonising when they just let bring him down. That's why the weakest moment in this is um, when you forget the survey. Like, oh, oh and girl. I, mean, I love yeah. the scene, but this is it. This kind of quiet, understated, and this kind of paternal figure. Now, because you're meant to, I think, 
see them mirroring Gwendolyn and Josiah, which is a deeply creepy sexual relationship. Oh, but I think this is a little bit creepy as well. Uh, because he's manipulating her, but there's a sense in which he's a therapist. Again, it's the idea that the doctor comes in to cure these people. And it's, uh, it's, it's how he's sort of, his body language as well. It's like he's coaxing it out of her in a... I mean, McCoy, of course, remember, did have a religious background. He was trained to be a priest. So there's something of the confessor going on here as well, of course, with kind of the Jesuit. Um, and, of course, this is a text full of religious imagery. Matthews, obviously. But, of course, light originally is meant to have wings. He's meant to be a full-on angel. Oh, but no, we can't have Kai again. <laughs> and, and so then he's meant to be some type of evangelical preacher. Here we go. I mean, we'll talk about light when he turns up. Out of escape from the cell. Is, is this the bit where he goes, well, it's a complete absurdity that a lot of my ancestors could be uh, traced so back to a protoplasmic globule? That's the way to the zoo. Oh, yeah, this is fabulous. Because is, was, is this here for a reason? Yeah, because if you listen me. to the lyrics, it's about it's about um, the zoo and it's about uh, the monkey house. The monkey house is nearly full with room enough for you. That's where Ernest Matthews is going. He goes to the monkey house. He's going to be turned into a monkey. So, the te again, Mike, Mark Ayers says that he found this. this that, that's a original. That's a Victorian song. He didn't have to write it. And it just fits so well. And so that's why it's there. But it's also because when she's described as a musical trollop, in the second episode yeah. so she's meant to be playing the piano she's meant to you know polite ladies in victorian society don't play songs like that they play nice music and they do a bit of um needlework and a bit of drawing and a bit of french and of that's not what's happening here do you see what you said there mark has found this song it suited the story everybody is on the same page here in a way that doctor who hasn't been for a long time i suspect the script invigorates them yeah because it's a script that's working on so many different levels and because everyone can play to their strengths. So there's no huge effects works that can go wrong. I do. I, I'm given to understand that some of the actors were a bit baffled by the yeah. script. Yeah. Sharon Deuce appears to wonder what her motivation is. So they tell her that she's um, Eliza Doolittle. From... I, I remember like the uh, apparently McCoy was like, well, let's call, let's call Mark Platt. He'll explain it to us what it's yeah. all about, you know. But, you know fair dues like they haven't had anything like this before oh no and it would only work in this run of the the show the the only other run that's go for this kind of highbrow intelligent is wrong because it implies other runs are stupid but it's really kind of making you work is season 18 bits of season 18 yeah and there's but there's a real unity to that season as well yeah. isn't there yeah, yeah. And, and, and again and... It's, it's, it bid me brings unity to that Cartmel's bringing unity here, and Cartmel's working with writers. What you don't hear about is falling out with the writers. There's a much better relationship with them, and Cartmel has got a team there. They're all young. They can work together. They've seen the show. They see what he's doing. They've got similar backgrounds, and yeah, it might produce a run of scripts that maybe you'd go, well, where's the diversity amongst the writers? But the fact is you've got the writers who are producing it. The and only it, unmoving it. mountain, as far as Cartmel is concerned, is Jane Baker. Arena having none of it. I mean, if you read Script Doctor, and again, with all the caveats there, this is someone who's working with his writers. There's still problems with JNT. So the, the notorious uh, incidents down in Arundel when, when Cartwell just comes home and then they ring him up and they bring him back and the atmosphere is much better. And him walking away forced JNT to admit that something had gone wrong there. It's, it's a much healthier atmosphere, I think. I mean, I don't think these are all perfect scripts in this era. No, no, but the, like, the, the his, 
No, no, but it's just the energy of them, the ideas, the imagination, all of that is 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 all up on the up again, you know. Yes. And you've got performances, and it, it's your point that you can watch this because it's at seven thirty-five on a Wednesday evening, and there's only about four million people watching it. That gives you kind of freedom, but yeah. you know people are watching it, and you know there's a core audience, and there's you want a new audience, and therefore you have to pitch it at just the right level. And this how, is a how did this poll at the time? Do you know? In the DWM poll, I, I, I can I think Curse of Fenric came Curse top, was I think. top. And this is this is second or third. Battlefield is always at the bottom, which I never understood as a child. Now I understand it. I would I still wouldn't put it there. I mean, I find I I you know I've said before I don't I don't really get the appeal of Curse of Fenric, but I can see why people like it. And the fourth episode is is amazing. It might be the best single episode of this this season. So that's all kind of hugely contradictory there. But I wouldn't I wouldn't go that better and that's worse than the other. I can see there are issues that they haven't got the money in Battlefield for what they want to do. That's why this is better because they don't have to do as much, and so they achieve more. Yeah, not having to do as much. Playing and to their strengths. Although the joy of Battlefield is it turns me into a child again when I watch it because I absolutely can remember watching it on the original it, It's brilliant, but it's about ideas as well, of course, because you've got a metaphor there in the, in mm. the story. And it's about love and it's about loss. And, but and, I think there's an indulgency to Battlefield that isn't here. This is a lot tighter. And, oh, and it's not just because it's three episodes long. Yeah. yeah. I think because they've got, because this is this is proper drama. You know, there's no big blue monster as the turning up at the end. Uh, you don't have to have the effect of a, a tower blowing up. Sophie Aldred doesn't nearly die. The worst thing that happens here is she exposes herself by accident. You haven't got this massive core of Doctor Who community uh, continuity thrown in with Unit, which comes with Bessie and all those other sort of bits and bobs that you throw in there. Of course, in a sense, that's 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 going to come down the line with this because of course, lurking behind this is Longbarrow. Well, and I did want to talk to you about that. But I might save that for the beginning of episode two. Yes, 